What policies hurt business? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Ross Emmett and Steve Slavinsky. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Ross Emmett and Steve Slavinsky. Ross is a professor of economic thought and director at the Center for the Study of Economic Liberty at Arizona State University. His teaching deals primarily with the central questions of comparative economic governance, such as why do some nations fail when others succeed, and what is the relationship between basic economic institutions and their legal, cultural, and political context. His research concerns both the history of how modern societies have answered those questions and how today's answers affect liberty, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Steve is a senior research fellow and director of the Doing Business North America, DBNA, project at the Center for the Study of Economic Liberty at Arizona State University. He formerly held the position of senior economist at the Goldwater Institute, research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and senior editor in the research department of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. His research focuses on the regulatory barriers to entry for businesses and entrepreneurs, particularly as it manifests itself in state-level occupational licensing burdens. Together, Steve and Ross have worked on the aforementioned flagship project, Doing Business North America, a set of studies and stats gathering analysis projects that form an index. We will explore that index and its implications in our discussion today. Ross, Steve, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me on. So guys, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the conversations and answers take us. Our question today that frames our episode is, what policies hurt business? And we'll be covering a lot of different points today, including the doing a business North America discussion. Um, And I think our question will be answered uh, as we explore what makes it easy to do business. And then, of course, the inverse is what policies hurt business. And and that's actually where, where I'd like to start. So... Ross, we'll start with you. At a high level, what is doing business North America? Tell me what you guys mean by measuring ease of doing business and what DBNA tells us. I think one way of answering your question, Alex, is to say that the market is a, is a competition between businesses, but also between uh, businesses competing for customers. So we have both customers and uh, businesses uh, in the market. And the interplay between them, of course, is what uh, over the long haul uh, leads to changes in businesses that exist as businesses succeed and fail at uh, or or succeed not as well at um, meeting customer uh, customers' needs. So as we think about um, the Doing Business North America project, part of our uh, our emphasis is on uh, barriers that are created to to businesses trying to compete for consumer um, uh, demand and meet, trying to meet consumer demand. And, um, and that those restrictions then play a, a role in the market separate from the participation of businesses and consumers and uh, affect the choices that consumers and, um, and businesses uh, have for just as an example that doesn't exist anywhere. So I'm, I'm making it as a, just a hypothetical. If, uh, if your city um, only allowed, uh, as, it, as many cities used to, only allowed businesses to operate, say, six days a week, not seven, 
or never after five o'clock in the afternoon right. and never before nine o'clock in the morning, uh, we would see a very different business environment and consumer environment than we see today where businesses are open 24 hours a day, in many cases, grocery stores and, and other stores where uh, businesses can be open seven days a week or um, uh, not. So the, the background of this is, can we create uh, or, or can we see how the regulatory environment affects the choices that businesses and consumers have available to them? In the market. Excellent. No, I think that's a great high-level summary. And before we jump right into a couple more specific questions I have, Steve, is there anything you'd like to add to Ross's great summary and high-level intro there? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, and we'll probably get into the nuts and bolts of this later for sure uh, as we go forward. But one thing that we find unique about this project, one thing I think that attracted us uh, to the idea of putting this together um, was the fact that a lot of the rankings that you'll see on this kind of thing Usually they'll call them business climate rankings, but they're of two different types. Uh, typically they were, well, actually they had a lot of the same attributes, but there were two things that were different than what we're doing with DBNA. The first is they were looking at a lot of intangible things, such as you know, uh, how nice it is to live there or sort of preferences and public survey responses about uh, commute times and things of this sort. It doesn't mean that's not important, but that wasn't quite what we were going for because we wanted to go something that was more policy oriented and policy centric. And then when you think about all the policy oriented rankings that are out there, a lot of them deal, and this is the second attribute, uh, a lot of them deal with the state level only, right? They're looking at what the state policy or in the case of Canada, provincial policy is. And what we wanted to do is go down deeper. There's one thing we started to notice is that you might have some cities, Texas is a good example of this, uh, where at the state level, you've got really good, strong policy on fiscal side and regulatory side. But then you have cities like Austin, for instance, who are doing a very poor job of, uh, of, uh, of easing the cost of doing business by increasing the regulatory burden above and beyond what the state does. So there was so much variation here that we thought it would be a really fun experiment uh, to see the differences, uh, again, between these types of rankings that we see already and also between uh, the, the cities as they compare to the states as well. I just wanted to add one other little piece to this, and that is that the basic concept of the uh, Doing Business North America project is rooted in a project that the World Bank has been doing now for close to 20 years, and that's called Doing Business Report. So it's a global report. Now, it turns out that in their report, they only take one city uh, from from most nations and look just at like the capital city. Right. And they use the capital city as representative for the whole country. But the the, the basic structure of the, um, the of the regulations that we are, we look at are, are, are set by the World Bank report so that our project is compatible with the World Bank's report, but gives a much finer, closer look uh, across Canada, across the United States, and across Mexico in ways that the World Bank's uh, sort of one number fits all um, report 
doesn't. Right. And I'm actually glad you brought that point because it's sort of in a similar vein to another thing that jumped out at me that I want to note here, which is that one thing you guys noted, and this is when in, in a, one of the webinars you guys did that I watched, uh, you guys are focusing on small and medium-sized businesses in the DBNA. Can you just talk a bit about that, Ross, sort of in the same vein we were talking about? Is this different than what other people are doing? And why was it so important to you guys to focus on small and medium-sized businesses and not say like how Deloitte is doing across the world kind of thing? Uh, I have family members who work for Deloitte, and I can tell you that Deloitte's doing very well. <laughs> Good. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, what you're asking is well-captured by uh, an interview in the Philadelphia Inquirer um, or that led that was part of the um, an article they did on doing business in Philadelphia based upon the Doing Business North America project. And in that, they interviewed several uh, city officials. And the city officials said, um, <laughs> well, yeah, no. Businesses love coming to Philadelphia. Everybody loves Philadelphia. The big, the big businesses love coming to Philadelphia. And of course, um, the the reporters um, used that as a nice little play to say, uh, but not all Philadelphians uh, have equal access to being able to easily start a business like the big companies that come to Philadelphia. So it's not about whether people like coming to Philadelphia or whether big businesses can handle it. They have something called billable hours. They have lawyers. The lawyers can sit in the business office and fill out forms right. and submit them. The small business person is losing days of work by going to an office and having to wait four or five days, 10 days, whatever, to uh, complete the process of starting a business or being able to hire someone, et cetera, et cetera. Steve can expound on this more even better than I can. So I'll stop. Yeah, for sure, Steve. But I know that, yeah, and in fact, that's exactly right. And in, uh, so, yes, as, as Ross said, you know, the big businesses can kind of uh, sort of uh, leap over this hurdle much easier uh, on the regulatory side than a smaller, medium-sized business. Uh, furthermore, a lot of cities and states, of course, and provinces as well, uh, trip over themselves to try to throw money and subsidies right. at these large companies in, in a way they don't, they don't do for small and medium business. Now, of course, I actually think that's a terrible idea. Uh, but the point is, the bigger companies are the ones that are targets of a lot of that largesse. Uh, another point I would make as well is uh, when people think about uh, movement of people and businesses, um, what's sometimes lost in the mix, and of course, the fact that small and medium-sized businesses make up more than 50% of employment in most cities in the U.S. and also in Canada as well. Uh, but the, the reality is that a lot of these businesses aren't moving from one state to another. They're native homegrown businesses, right? And so if you're putting a, bar a barrier to entry uh, on uh, individual entrepreneurs within a state uh, from building up a business there, uh, they're actually more likely to move to another place, right? So in some respects, you can kind of think of this as being the uh, kind of the origin story of certain migrations. And of course, you're seeing that with a place like California, which for many years was able to, uh, in a sense, have bad policy almost in spite of itself. Um, and I think now they've reached a limit of critical mass where people are realizing it's just not worth it anymore and they're moving to other places. And actually, you know, with that backdrop, I think we'll move right into some specifics here. So let, let me just kick off the next gear here by saying, so a DBNA looks at, a, a, if I read this correctly and took the note correctly, 130 cities across 92 states, provinces and district across North America. So you guys measure tons and tons of things that goes into creating the ease of doing business scale. And ultimately, you sort 
all the measures that you guys had into six categories. What I'd like to do now is actually go through each of those categories and discuss, you know, what they mean, why they're important. Of course, some of the measures that that go into each, we can't just cover every measure. We'd be here probably for hours and hours and hours, so, but we'll put in our episode notes when we post the episode, the link so our listeners can go check that stuff out for themselves. So uh, Steve, I'll start with you for this one. So, so starting a business, what does that category mean? What are the kind of measures that go into that? What did you guys take a look at in that category? Sure, certainly. So starting a business is one of six categories uh, that are part of the bigger ease of doing business score, right? And what basically we score up, uh, as you said, uh, hundreds of different metrics. I think we had over 10,000 actual individual data points uh, that make up all six of these categories. Uh, and starting a business is the first of those six. Uh, and as you would expect, because what we try to do is create sort of a timeline of a business from the origin, starting the business, operating the business, and then if you don't do well, uh, liquidating your assets and shutting down, which is actually not as easy as it sounds in some places. Uh, but the starting a business is effectively what it sounds like. It's effectively the time and cost it takes to start a business. So that's the number of procedures you have to do, the number of forms you have to fill out, but also the time in terms of days and, and, and you know, calendar hours, as well as the cost, not just the fees, but also the economic costs or the, the number of hours we ascribe, you know, a time uh, uh, cost to that. And so what we do is we aggregate those uh, to create the starting a business category. And that's actually fairly uh, significant in a lot of places. Uh, and of course, if you can't get off the ground quick enough, uh, you might have competitors come in, especially in more fast-moving industries. You know that's actually significant. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's the it's the actual monetary cost uh, that that's more significant in a lot of different places. Uh, so that's really what starting a business was all about. And and of course, it's a wide variance uh, between cities and how well uh, they do that. Right. And and of, and of course, I guess there's the discussion of not getting off the ground quick enough. But I guess in some places, perhaps. If not getting off the ground at all might be a problem, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about the fact that most small and medium-sized businesses don't make a profit in the first couple of years. So if you're effectively creating a kind of this wedge uh, in the uh, in their ability to start, uh, you're effectively kind of putting, kind of prolonging the amount of time that they have to actually get off the ground up and, uh, and, and actually work on uh, kind of start actually running their own business. I have a couple of specific cities we can talk about later to put examples of this stuff, but I do want to keep running through the categories now. So, so Ross, let me throw employing workers at you, that category. What, what kind of things went into that? Uh, employing workers, the, uh, the, the, it's basically about the amount of uh, procedures and processes you have to go through in order to have a legal hire. So, um, and, uh, and also as Steve, uh, points out for all of these, um, the amount of time it takes. Um, and I, I can throw in a story here from my previous efforts at uh, working on this project briefly, and Steve can elaborate on more regarding the, uh, the, the, this, the, the DBNA work. Um, I had a, a former student who uh, took a long break from employment for other, uh, other purposes and uh, repurposed herself uh, and came back and wanted and, and had started a, um, a service business that she had the skills to be able to uh, provide to families that were not, uh, not located in the same place that their, that their parents, their aging parents were. And so when their parents went to a doctor, for example, uh, this person would go along and take notes for, their, for the children um, not as an intervener in the uh, like the doctor patient process, but simply to provide the children 
with the information. And she decided to hire someone. To, she had so much business, she decided to hire someone. And she decided that it would be that people would prefer to have an actual hired employee rather than someone who was working on a contract basis um, for, for, uh, for her. And um, she was in, in, a, in the state that I formerly lived in, which people can find out. Um, and um, after numerous, numerous, numerous calls to the federal, to the uh, state agency, the woman at the state agency said to her, dear, I don't understand why you haven't just turned this over to your human resource department or your legal department to take care of. And the woman said to her, I, I am the business. I don't have a human resource department. I don't have a labor department. And the woman said, well, how do you ever get anyone hired? And then hung up on her. And uh, so uh, that's an extreme example, obviously, but it illustrates that there is a process that you have to go to to legally hire people. And again, the number of steps involved in that and the cost of that is something that is a burden to a, um, a small firm um, and might well lead to you know, the, the, the high use of contract labor, which may or may not be as perfect as an employee-based um, relationship. Right. So just just to round off that point for those listening, especially if people haven't checked this this what goes into this category yet for themselves. So this isn't about, you know, employing workers as an easy employer. It's not about if there's actually people eager and willing to take a job out there. This is more, as you said, about the, the hoops, regulatory or otherwise, that make it more difficult for you to actually bring someone on legally. Yeah. And I like to think of this as sort of an ability of a business to freely write what contract they want to write with their employee. So we have in here certain restrictions like city mandates on paid or required or mandated leave. We have things like minimum wage uh, laws in, in this employing workers category as well, because I think all of these speak to uh, the broader question about how, uh, how laissez-faire in a sense uh, the city wants to be uh, or needs to be really in a competitive sense. Uh, right. to let employers and employees write the contracts they want. And this is a big deal, and it will be going forward, I think, in terms of how we see an evolving labor market where you've got more gig workers in the economy. You've got more people uh, setting up home businesses, right? The employment-employee relationship is going to look a little different uh, now, I think, in, on in the future than it does currently. And I think regulatory burdens need to kind of be a, a part of that story to think about uh, how we're driving away certain types of innovation uh, at the city level. Let's park that for now and we'll pivot into the, the getting electricity. That that was an interesting one to me. I thought that was very cool to, to look at. So Steve, why don't you continue and take us through like, why is this important and what went into you guys taking a look at that? Sure. So we adopted this from the World Bank study and not everything we adopted or rather not everything in the World Bank study were things that we actually adopted. We thought we wanted to make them more specific to the North American experience for Canada, the US and Mexico. Um, but getting electricity was one that, in fact, Ross and I talked about it early on. Uh, I was originally thinking, there's not gonna be a lot of variation here. It's getting, we're in a pretty developed country. The electricity grid's fairly reliable. Right. Uh, and then I don't know if it was Ross, I think he was talking about uh, brownouts in Michigan or some other places. And I thought about it and realized, well, that happens a lot in California too. And so maybe electricity grid's not, or I should say the reliability of electricity isn't something we should be taking for granted. So we started to look through categories and started rather a topics uh, and specific data we could put into this category. Uh, and towards the price of electricity, uh, was hugely significant for a lot of businesses. And of course it varies by state as well. Also the competitiveness of the electricity markets. It's gonna have a real big impact on uh, what those prices are. 
uh, and the reliability as well uh, of electricity grids. Uh, as we see, you know, places that you wouldn't expect to have brownouts sometimes have brownouts, and that could be a real significant business cost as well. So once we realized there was more variation in this category than even I initially had thought, uh, we decided to go ahead and keep it in because it is an important part of running a modern business. So, so ultimately, for, from the like small businesses or medium-sized businesses perspective, it, it really comes down to like how much that electricity costs, and if after you even pay that cost, if it's actually reliable on top of that. Exactly. And I think of the. Uh... Montreal to uh, Toronto corridor, um, maybe as a test case for you, the number of winter storms that knock out power. Um, in Michigan, we, we had a winter storm that knocked out power for two weeks to almost all the, the, uh, the area. And uh, for individuals, of course, m- most of the stories were about how households were coping. But of course, most of the businesses were shut down as well. And um, so um, the 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 loss of power and availability of power during um, critical seasons is certainly something that uh, businesses are affected by. So, so Steve, let's talk about land and space use. Then let's talk about that category at a high level. What should our listeners keep in mind when when they think of the things that you guys put put into this to really get that category and measure going? Sure. So again, uh, from the World Bank study, they used to put in something called registering property, which was a more bureaucratic type of metric. The idea of uh, deeding your property. That's actually really significant for a lot of developing countries where you can't really claim uh, property as your own. So World Bank decided to measure that. But we realized that there was a lot more going on uh, in Canada and Mexico and the U.S. Uh, than just simply deeding property. We did include that in here. And that's exactly what we talk about when we think about a land use or more specifically uh, land uh, registration. But the idea of what you use your property for once you have deeded it, once you have a rightful legal claim to it, uh, that's something that the cities are very eager often to get involved with. And so we decided to rename this category land and space use. And if you think about it broadly, it's effectively a zoning measure. The idea of uh, once you have the property, uh, what mandates the city or state often uh, will have on your ability to use and what you use that property for. So we used uh, a metric uh, that actually we developed based on uh, uh, a very well-known what they call land use index that came out of the Wharton School out in Pennsylvania. Uh, And the idea was they had a residential land use index that looked at how you have massive price increases in housing when you restrict the supply of that housing. It makes a lot of sense, right? If you have green space that you have to have zoned or you have uh, minimum acreage lot requirements, things like that, you're gonna drive up the price of, of housing because you're gonna be restricting the supply of that housing. We figured the same thing is probably applicable to commercial property. And so what we've developed with the land and space use category is effectively a Wharton School Residential Index for land use, but applied to commercial property. So the number of steps it takes to get to the zoning process, um, the the nature uh, and severity of the mandates, uh, or the absence or the presence of those mandates uh, in individual cities. And we aggregated those uh, in this category. And actually, this turned out to be one of the more significant categories, along with uh, employing workers uh, in deciding the ultimate final score. I think because one, there's a lot of variation. Uh, but also, I think we, we began to discover that uh, there's a lot of material here that had just never really been measured before. And we wanted to make sure we had an opportunity to, to put this in our study. And we're really proud of this one. I think it's one of the things that sets 
uh, DBNA apart from a lot of other measures. Right. I, I think it would be obvious to someone listening to, to, as you were describing that, how that would definitely affect someone like purchasing land or developing on it, et cetera. But, but for a business that's say like that is renting in a, in a commercial strip mall or a commercial space somewhere, I suppose that it would, these kind of things would also affect them because many costs would be passed through to them if the owners and the developers have to go through everything you just talked about as well. Yes, exactly right. I mean, you see this on the residential side as well. Rents go up when you've got a restriction of land. So it does, it does uh, effectively kill, uh, embed the cost of these zoning regulations in something that, uh, that, that you know, a renter would uh, would pay in all of this. And something we're going to keep doing uh, on into the future as we develop this category further uh, is the idea that there are actually, again, different types of business models we're seeing in the new economy. Home-based businesses are a good example. There's a lot of zoning implications for people who want to run a home-based business. And in fact, a lot of the city regs uh, don't properly acknowledge uh, the ability of people have to use their homes because once you declare for tax purposes your home as a business or at least a portion of your home as a business then suddenly there's a lot of zoning regs that get unlocked about the the square footage you, you need to devote to certain types of things and there may be some state environmental regs that go into this and so there's a number of different things that we could put into here that i think reflect the reality of how people running small and again small and medium-sized businesses again right. these are people who are renting storefronts not owning a strip mall but they're renting the storefront or they're turning their home into a business i mean these are real significant costs uh, to a lot of these businesses, and they're going to be more costly in some cities than in others. And you mentioned taxes there towards the end. So speaking of that, category five of six is is paying taxes. Is is this as really as simple of it, as it sounds, or that it would appear to anybody listening to this? It, obviously, if the tax burden's way too high, or in certain cities it's just unbearable for small businesses. I mean, how's your business doing at that point? Is that really what that comes down to? Exactly right. That, in fact, that that is probably the easiest category of all these six to describe. It's effectively tax policy. Uh, at the state and city level. Uh, and again, that's significant because if you're only looking at the state level and you're looking at the state income tax or the state sales tax, uh, you're only getting half of the story, especially since uh, I would say some of the cities that are most punitively uh, taxing uh, businesses and individuals are doing so through income taxes at the local level. And that's something that's actually not very common in the US, but they're fairly common in places like San Francisco, New York. Uh, places that have been chronically seen as uh, as sort of places that are eager to, or I shouldn't say eager to, but uh, they, they have been effectively driving talent away for at least the past few years. And you begin to see tax policy look different at the city level than you do at the state level in a lot of these places. And so again, I think uh, the paying taxes is very simple to describe, but it's significant because we're looking at taxes all the way down to the city level, which is something a lot of rankings don't do. And to round off our discussion of the six categories, uh, category six of six, before our break, we'll get this in. Ross, resolving insolvency. At a, at a high level, what's going on there? Why? What goes into this measure and why is it so important to discuss? The resolving insolvency category is about getting out of the business. So it, just as it's important to talk about how what the cost structure and time frames are uh, in terms of cost for um, for getting into business, what happens in getting out of business. Um, so the partners to the business need to uh, end their relationship. Are there, are there regulatory issues that affect that? Are there costs that affect that? Um, you, you need to, uh, if your business has not succeeded, uh, we, you, you need to pay off your debts. Can you um, can you use bankruptcy as a way to reduce your debts, the the debt that you have incurred to um, suppliers or to to partners? 
um, et cetera. And so the resolving insolvency issue kind of highlights all of that. In the, in the North American case, uh, this, um, there is variation here, largely at the national level. So um, it, there's differences between Canada, the U.S., and, and Mexico. Um, it, it's not as, um, as variable uh, city to city um, or even uh, state to state or province to province. Um, so this, this category tends to have a national uh, policy framework. Um, but, you know, uh, just, to give, just to show you sort of why it matters um, sort of potentially importantly, um, in, um, in the state of Israel, um, uh, you are 100% liable for all of the debt that your company incurs if you go bankrupt. Um, so uh, that actually, so if you think of it at that extreme, right. then think backwards, you would say, if it's really hard to get out of the business deal, then it's probably likely that fewer businesses start. So uh, because there's such a high cost of failure, uh, people are less likely to try to start a business. So, the, so now thinking about you know, the US, Canada, Mexico, um, um, in that kind of framework, the, uh, you know, we are still in the, in the bankruptcy procedures, in the, uh, the resolution of any debts, et cetera. The, uh, there are still costs being imposed upon the people running the business that they, uh, that they have to bear uh, in order to uh, make this decision to exit their business and deal with getting out of business. So it's still part of the life cycle of the business. We go from starting up, then all the processes you have to do on a regular basis, and then if you decide to stop your business, there's the processes of getting out of business. And that's sort of the life cycle of the small to medium-sized business. Right. And I think that's an excellent way to round this section of our conversation off. So we may as well take our break right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ross Emmett and Steve Slavinsky today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Danny Leroy, and Darcy Giroux. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ross Emmett and Steve Slavinsky today. So, so gentlemen, I think the first half of our conversation was great. We went through the, the six categories of the DBNA, uh, talked a bit about the specific measures that go into each of those six categories. And I did tease at the front end that we're going to park examples and, and a little bit more digging till later. So now that we covered the six categories, I think we can get into at least some specific examples. So Steve, the top five cities in the US on the ease of doing business scale are Raleigh, North Carolina, Jackson, Mississippi, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Charleston, South Carolina. In a presentation of yours I watched, you said these top five are pushed to the top most effectively by three specific measures, employing workers, land and space use, and paying taxes. Beyond just my quick tracing there, 
what what else would you like to, to bring to the forefront in terms of what unites these five cities or anything else you'd like to highlight? Sure. Well, sir, so one thing that's interesting is a lot of these states in which these cities reside uh, actually often do tend to rise to the higher levels of a lot of the economic freedom indices uh, that you talk about or that you've heard about over the years. And so, so there's a certain commonality there, which I'm really actually happy and, and heartened to, to hear about. But if I could just give kind of a bigger picture of course. Uh, thing about this about DBNA that I think is actually really useful, and then I'll dive directly into uh, a question or to the question. Uh, one of the things we think is most exciting to us about DBNA is, by its definition, it's sort of modular. You can take each of these categories as a researcher and take our data, which is publicly available on our website, which is dbna.asu.edu. If you download our data, it's an Excel spreadsheet, and you can basically look at all the scores, all of the metrics that we use, uh, because the data we use is publicly available data, we turn it around after we collate it and, and compile it and give it to allow researchers to do. We were very curious to know which of these individual categories are, are more significant than others. We wanted to make sure that we were sort of as neutral as possible in that specific aspect. So we gave everything an equal weight. We didn't weight things heavier in other directions than others. Uh, but the reality is that because we have more material for a lot of these categories, they're going to be slightly heavier in the mix, right? So this is just right. sort of mathematical reality. Uh, so employing workers, land and space use and paying taxes are, on average, the things we have a lot of material for. But it also has shown uh, when we look at some of this, I started doing a little bit of digging and uh, trying to correlate some of these categories and the broader score uh, with a growth in small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, there's been some preliminary research done on uh, migration of workers between cities, between states, uh, using the DBNA metrics. Uh, and it does seem as if this, at least the starting of uh, the employing workers and the paying taxes part in particular uh, are the one things that uh, can tend to explain some of these migrations better than others. And so in that sense, uh, it, it sort of all gels, right? It's sort of a, a broader measure uh, of kind of a regulatory burden at the local level that seems to mimic what you see at the, at the state level with some economic freedom indices. But then you also start to see some uh, some empirical realities uh, kind of emerge from this. And because we're only in year uh, two at the moment, we're, we're, we're finishing up year three for release in October of this year, uh, we're starting to talk to some more analytics, uh, researchers rather, and, and empirical uh, researchers to look at uh, which of these categories uh, are going to be uh, most explanatory when thinking about business starts and business relocations, as well as worker migrations between states. And, and, and many, many Canadian cities, uh, the keen listener will, will note that I, although I talk fast myself, I, I, sa I said that, that that was the top five U.S. cities. I'm not avoiding talking about the top Canadian cities, if the listener's wondering that, because most Canadian cities actually ranked way lower than the U.S. ones. But, but a city of note that we can sort of say is in the same league as some of the cities I just talked about, at least, or at least the same ballpark, was Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, Ross, when you guys are putting together the, the measure, did uh, e even at a high level, did, did the fact that Edmonton uh, show itself in, in the same league and same ballpark as some of these other cities I just mentioned, was that surprising to you? Having lived in Alberta, very close to Edmonton, and currently having a son who lives in Edmonton, um, I, I, uh, I was a little surprised, but not entirely surprised. I knew that Alberta um, would probably do uh, reasonably well in the report on the, on, in the categories where um, Alberta can compete against other cities. Uh, it, there are differences between uh, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico in terms of where policies are made. And, and some of our categories in the report are more determined 
by federal policies than they are by uh, uh, provincial or city level decisions. And in, and in Canada, um, uh, provincial level decisions are probably a little more important than city level decisions. And so if you, um, if you take the, the, the Alberta case, it's not surprising that both Edmonton and Calgary do reasonably well in the report. And Edmonton, um, because of really only one, I think, category, maybe two categories, just kind of edges out um, the, the, the ranking to sort of be the top ranked um, Canadian city. And uh, it was the top ranked because it was the highest ranked Canadian city in several categories, not just one category. Uh, whereas uh, Calgary, St. John's, Halifax, Toronto, they, they come close. In fact, Calgary beats Edmonton on uh, the, ease of, the ease of starting a business. But, um, the, uh, but overall, Edmonton slightly edges out, edge, uh, edges out its, its neighbor, uh, something that my son was happy to hear being a resident of Edmonton. Well, one thing I didn't notice that was really cool when I was diving into some of the measures too is that how well some cities actually do on some measures, like very well, and then others are just like terrible. Like, so for instance, I'm in Ottawa right now recording, that's where the ILS is. And I just, of course, wanted to look at what Ottawa scored on a couple of things. And if I remember correctly, like starting a business was very high. I think it was like 93 out of 100 or something like that. Like it was, it was quite high, but the rest of it was not that great. So it's interesting that, as you said, you note that, of course, to be in, in the top tier, there's a bunch of things that must be high, but, but there are some pockets you can find in the DBNA where there's a couple of superstars in some areas that are weighed down by other things. So our findings mirrors something that the World Bank's findings found back when the World Bank started doing this. And that is that many locations that don't necessarily rank well on uh, the ease of doing business overall have one margin that they control, that they can fix. And that's the ease of starting a business. So at one point in time in, um, in Singapore, you could have an office with a telephone and a, um, and a registered business line uh, in less than a day. And actually they got down to an argument about the number of hours. Um, the city, the, the state of Massachusetts keeps a registry of all available um, uh, warehouse space. And so if someone comes and says they're starting a business, the, the state can say, uh, where do you want to locate? Well, there's warehouses here, here, and here. And, and the, the individual doesn't have to do that search. Um, and, and so um, it, it's very clear, even in the first doing business report last year, but also again this year, that certain cities in Canada have recognized that if they simplify the process of starting a business to a very, as short a span of time as possible, um, they can attract business. So uh, um, last year, Winnipeg was in the mix with that. Halifax was was there. Uh, Calgary and, and and Calgary is this time, I believe. Um, and so, in in those kind of contexts, um, where you have a margin that you can um, uh, um, use to attract business 
to uh, places that people might not think of as their first choice, right? Then um, it, we capture. We so one of the things I will say is that we're noticing that uh, city city officials are actually economically rational in this context. They see an edge that they can gain a benefit on, and they they're using it. No, that's excellent. And I guess that that's also important for everyone listening to you guys are so in deep in this, obviously, you know, very well, but even I, I have read the reports, I've read your articles. So it's, it's even tough for me, let alone someone who's just coming to this fresh episode, we do have to keep in mind, as you said, that competing level of government issue, right? Because there are regulations, the federal government can do a provincial or state governments and local. So it's, 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 it's nice to hear that some local governments have at least gone, actually, we want business to be easy here. So they do what they can on their end of the equation, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's really important to have an index like this that focuses mainly on on policy, because that is the one thing that policymakers, by definition, can change. They can't right. change the geographic climate. They can't change where they're physically located. Uh, so for the most part, they can really only kind of push the lever. Some places have natural advantages you know, with, with ports, for instance, or right, or, right. Uh, or even you know, certain types of geographic advantages. Um, but you know, not every place has good tax policy. Uh, but you can you can be one of those places if you're in the middle of nowhere and you want to attract people coming to your to your city. So so different cities are going to treat things differently and kind of push different policy levers, and this just gives them a guide to figure out which ones they should be pushing. In our opinion, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it turns out that Saskatchewan, Canada, is not going to be like an international shipping port of the world just because of where it is. Right, right, right. For your listeners, there's an interesting little. Um, dispersion in the ranking. So we have 130 cities, as you pointed out, about 80 of those are US cities, and they clump toward the top. So they tend to be uh, quite a bit better than most Canadian cities, which are kind of in the middle. But there is, once you get past Canada, there's actually a lot of, a little bit of mixing between uh, Canada and the bottom US cities. So for instance, uh, you know, Edmonton, uh, in particular, scores better than New York City, or Los Angeles, California, right? But it doesn't do as well as Newark, New Jersey. So there's some interesting mixing at that level. But then you get down to the third tier, which is basically mostly Mexican cities. Right. But even then, there's some mixing with Canada. In fact, Quebec is worse in terms of the regulatory burden than most Mexican cities. Right. So it just kind of gives you an example of even though there is sort of this broader regional uh, dispersion, if you will, in the ranks, uh, it's not always uh, you know, a, a slam dunk. Not every Canada, Canada city is going to be in the middle. Not every U.S. city is going to be at the top. And actually, that's a great segue. Let's get into that that conversation right now. So, so it turns out that the, the bottom five cities in the U.S. are Newark, New Jersey, San Diego, California, San Jose, California, New York, and Los Angeles, California. So of course, all the measures we've been talking about in this whole conversation come into play here. But but again, Steve, is there anything you'd like to highlight about what those bottom five American cities have, have in common? Well, one thing that's pretty normal, and I should say pretty uh, consistent with these cities is, uh, and as Roloff mentioned, you know, you've got some cities that can score well on some things and not as well on others and still kind of rise toward the top. But if you're a city that does things consistently poorly across the board, you're basically going to be ending up toward the bottom. And that's effectively where uh, these five cities are. And we grade on a scale, or rather, sorry, we grade on a curve. So basically, you know, the, the top score is going to get the top, or I should say the, the the one that does things best in terms of our measures will, will rank toward the top. And then, of course, the one to the bottom, and they'll be setting the bottom and the top of the range, and everyone filters in between those things. And so uh, we grade on a curve with all 130 cities. So even though these cities do poor by U.S. standards, uh, they actually do fairly well. Uh, compared to, as I said, they're right in the middle if you look at all 130 cities, but they're clearly toward the bottom of the 80 U.S. cities that we measure. That said, there's a consistent uh, low-scoring aspect to all most categories anyway. 
uh, for most of those cities. And that really is kind of the main common thread. The fact, though, that California is such a uh, a strong representative of these bottom five, and most of the cities of the bottom five are in California, uh, it's largely because of state policy, which I think is relatively poor on a lot of these metrics, but the cities are not making it any better. In fact, if anything, they're piling on, especially when it comes to zoning and taxes. Uh, so you're, you're finding uh, a, a number of different things that uh, are complicating things for businesses in those specific cities that might be different in another city in California. By the way, we choose uh, the biggest cities in all these states, but we want to make sure we have at least one city per state. The reason that's significant is because uh, we have a cap of four cities for the larger states. If that were the case, and we only did the top 100 cities in the U.S., we had a lot more California cities on here. Right. But we also didn't want to, we didn't make it look as if, uh, you know, we, we were only grading the largest cities. And besides, we thought there's a lot of variation uh, in places like Boise, Idaho, for instance, uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, Houston, Texas, right? We also limited Florida and Texas to four cities as well. So uh, there are some cities that may not be represented here. Uh, we've had people in those cities call and say, oh, why Why is our city not in here? It's bigger than this Boise, Idaho over here. I was like, well, it's because we were trying to make sure we had a nice uh, 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 what's a, a distribution of cities, a, a right. nice variance in, the, in the, the types of cities that we were looking at. Because I think that's going to be important uh, long-term, especially since some of these smaller to mid-sized cities are becoming attractors of talent and businesses in large part because of the fact that their regulatory and tax environments uh, are are so uh, favorable uh, to to wealth creation and business creation. Yeah, actually, and on that note, uh, Ross, I'll go to you for this one for for a second. But obviously, the doing business North America discussion is about is about doing business. But one thing that sort of struck me as I was going through the rankings and studying up on this is that it's interesting to note that a lot of the cities that did either very well or very poorly on the DBNA, DBNA scale, but, but th- this performance is sort of, in, in a way, at least to me, tied to at least what the perceived reputation of a certain city is. So for example, if, if someone from Ottawa, Canada was talking about moving to San Diego or San Jose, California, even without talking about business, people are going to be telling them, well, get ready to pay some high taxes and never be able to afford anything. Again, this may just seem obvious to you guys because you have the data, but sometimes in economic things are counterintuitive or intuitive depending how it goes so is it fair to sort of think of like you know that rule of thumb is like hey th- th- there's kind of a correlation there right even from a personal side how difficult quote unquote it might be to live in, in a city s- at least that reputation seems to be related to some of these rankings that i saw in, in dbna i, I want to answer yes and no i want to answer that i am more struck by the surprises that i then think well this makes total sense um having driven across Canada end to end several times and uh, have have lived in several different places and have children who have either gone to school or lived in different places um, in Canada. Um, Many of my preconceptions about Canadian cities, uh, uh, you know, what about Winnipeg um, uh, as a, you know, a classic example um, is uh, is is shaken a little bit by by looking at this data, you know, a city like Winnipeg um, is beginning to recognize that it's not just a, a certain you know sort of prairie town uh, gone big with some industry with it used to have beer production it used to have you know things like that but now it's a very varied city with a lot of different activity and um, and it and it. it some of the features of its place in the doing business report are um, 
are a, a function of its geographic place. Some of them are a function of its place, um, um, its, its history, right? Zoning issues are almost always the result of a long history of, and they're hard to overturn. It takes quite a lot of work to get zoning opened up. Um, but, you know, again, at the margins where they could attract talent, um, for example, starting a business, they moved, they moved on that and they were an early mover on that. And so, so as I think about uh, Canadian cities and uh, the variations between them, I actually uh, am struck that they, um, with, with, with a few exceptions, are, are moving up in certain categories where they can. Uh, but federal policy certainly has um, a, a strong role, and that uh, tends to tie their hands frequently, as well as in, the, in some of the larger provinces um, uh, as well, the, uh, the dominant interests um, you know, are, are still, still uh, there, as opposed to sort of the, the newer businesses, um, et cetera. But uh, Canada's turned out to be quite an entrepreneurial space um, these days, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I've really enjoyed uh, seeing, seeing it sort of pop up in different places in, in the report in ways that kind of surprised me. Yeah, no, I, I really like that idea, Ross, that and maybe it's not that maybe what's more interesting is not, oh, yeah, we, we kind of figured that, but, but but sort of the surprises that pop up. Steve, would you, would you like to add anything to that? Uh, do you feel the same way? Oh, I did feel the same way. In fact, uh, there again, from the American context, and I can't say I spent really very much, if any, time in Canada. So I apologize for not being able to speak too uh, widely about this, but being a, you know, again, a lifelong U.S. citizen, uh, knowing that there are some cities that uh, actually ended up kind of rising in the mix in ways that I didn't expect, uh, even though California cities generally seem to do bad, uh, poorly rather, uh, there actually were a number of aspects of some states uh, that made me, that, that surprised me. In fact, in fact, the fact the fact that Raleigh, North Carolina is, is top is actually surprising to me and actually surprising to a lot of people in North Carolina too, uh, whom I've received calls from asking me, well, why did Raleigh go to the top? Uh, and, but there's, so there's certain aspects of policy that we're measuring that I think, again, are, we think are predominant in terms of uh, the ability of businesses to start and to, to prosper. Um, and there are other, other things that people will say, well, that doesn't really matter so much, which is another reason why I want to make sure that we, we make this data publicly available. But I, I agree with Ross. I think the surprises are probably more interesting uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. if, if, any, if anything, uh, there's, yeah, that, that actually helps us think that we're, we're discovering something that are measuring things that people haven't measured before. Uh, and I think that's useful because I think that might help explain some phenomenon that we might see uh, in the trends that were hard to understand prior to this. And so I'm, we're really excited about the future of DBNA as a research tool uh, that will help us figure out uh, not just how good policy looks at the city and state level, but also to help see how it influences uh, business creation, migration of workers and businesses across state and provincial boundaries that kind of thing is, is very interesting to me. And I, and I hope that's the kind of thing that uh, can come out of a project at the very least like this. And, and speaking of surprises, actually, one, one more question here before we, we go to our formal wrap up for the episode is that one of the and you mentioned this one before, I think, you, uh, Steve, but one of the surprises for me was that one of the worst Canadian cities was Quebec City um, on all measures, of course. Uh, but that on top of that, 
Um, its overall score, and again, you mentioned this before, was actually worse than most Mexican cities. I, you know, one sort of thing that came into my head as soon as I read that and looked at their stats was that, and, and I'm just wondering aloud here, Ross or Steve, you guys let me know if, if I'm on the right track or there's something to be said for my thought here, which is that the the, the, typical, the particular nature of Quebec City is very interesting. It's a very historical city with many historical sites. Uh, there are, you know, tons of great restaurants, for instance, in, in old Quebec City, but you could tell that there's a lot of pressure on the people in them to maintain them a certain way. And on top of that, Quebec be, being Quebec, which is a whole different episode, has its, its type of employment laws on, on top of that. When a certain city might have that sort of character where people might try to think about fashioning it a certain way or preserving it in a certain way. I, I, my, my gut's telling me that, of course, we have our six categories, but that specific overall mission that might be in people's heads when they're preserving a sort of city, if you will, m- must definitely affect everything else that happens. When I thought Quebec City, I immediately thought that. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to it it's in, in the broader sense. Uh, yeah, zoning is actually hugely significant, as Ross pointed out, it's, it based on kind of the culture of the city or, or the, uh, the history of the city. And you see this in actually a lot of cities that have been around for, for quite a while. The idea that they've got a certain advantage of being who they are, right? For a long time, uh, urbanists of the past decade were talking about how do we become the next Silicon Valley? And so cities would do things that made them look superficially like places in Silicon Valley with, you know, with, with big museums and, and public art projects and stuff like that. But it really, that, that, that was sort of, that, that was not the leading factor for making these places what they are. In some senses, they're almost like historical accidents. They, they don't really occur very often. And when they do occur, they're really quite special and unique. Um, that's a blessing in a lot of ways, but it can also be a curse, because I would argue that places like San Francisco and New York City, they've in a sense been able to, uh, uh, to, to in a sense, overcome bad policy. Sort of, they have the luxury of, of instituting policies that places that are not New York or San Francisco just couldn't get away with. And so in some senses, uh, there's a certain amount of residual uh, reasons why people want to go live in a place like that. Part of it is because the historic value of it and such. And, and that goes a long way. But there are still limits to how much bad policy uh, can uh, or, or heavy handed tax and regulatory policy uh, can uh, can. Uh, demean that basically there's there's a limit even now we're seeing people leaving places that uh, like like places in california that they normally wouldn't they would have put up with some stuff but now that a whole series of other factors are beginning to line up uh recently not just part of the pandemic but even prior to that uh, we're starting to see more and more factors become more significant above and beyond just the fact that oh we like the city we live in because of x y and z and now it's coming to the point of, well, there's actually some things we don't like about it. The things we don't like about it are actually becoming more important and significant and making uh, a bigger uh, influence on our decisions. And so I, I think with cities like that, I think it's an interesting test case of uh, what, what's the breaking point uh, on policy uh, for these kinds of places. Ross, anything to add to that before we head to the, the formal wrap up? Uh, yeah, I do want to add something. Um, I was As Steve was talking, I was reminded of a book which... I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with by Virginia Postrel called The Future and Its Enemies. And, and really, in, and as I think about some of the cities of North America, uh, there's a real tension between the present, the future, and the past. Um, and which way are you going to, are you, are you, you know, is, is the goal to preserve uh, what the city has been, um, maybe because of its historic significance, um, 
like you said, Quebec City is a great example of that. I think in the United States, say of you know Philadelphia um, as the, the cradle of liberty, um, the, the place where the Constitution was written. Charlottetown doesn't, while it's for the place, the Canadian Constitution was framed, or at least the constitutional the decision to become an independent country was framed, doesn't have quite the same um, his, uh, preservation of that historic history there. But um, uh, you get the point. Um, or is it? Or is it pointing towards the future? And, and the future is always like beyond the present. So um, even the cities that today are like, yeah, we're at the forefront. Um, there, they may well not be at the forefront. And um, and these regulatory environments, um, as Steve said, I thought that was a really important point. You can overcome the regulatory environment if you're riding the crest of the wave. Um, if and you may be able to do that even for a significant amount of time. Um, but these regulatory environments really do uh, fundamentally shape the landscape of, um, of enterprise um, and um, are important to examine. And, and our rankings um, hopefully will contribute to that examination, just like the Economic Freedom of North America report does. Um, we provide a different uh, set of variables, but things that interlock with those economic freedom discussions. Um, et cetera. So I, I'm excited about the future of the project and um, and where we are, uh, where we're going with it. With specific reference to Canada, um, as the DBNA report is, stands today, um, there's one Canadian province that's not represented in the report. Uh, Charlottetown is as the capital of Prince Edward Island is not in the report. So we're we're looking to to bring that in. Um, and we're also, um, and Steve might be able to say a little bit more about this, but we're also um, both in the US and Canada example, in the next report bringing in, uh, or at least in the next reports, let me put it a different way. In the next reports, we are bringing in um, some of the territories. And uh, I think that will be an addition that we can provide that, uh, that national or state level uh, political discussions often kind of miss. Um, Steve, I'll let you chip in to just add the details. Absolutely, our goal is to try to add uh, cities each year we do this. Uh, so we're at 130 now, we're at 115 the first year. We're probably gonna add about a handful of cities this next time around, so it won't be as aggressive in years going forward, but we are gonna add cities each time. Uh, and as Ross said, adding territories is important. We're adding Puerto Rico. Uh, here to, to the next uh, edition as well uh, here in the U.S., uh, which may become a state soon, who knows? Uh, so it may actually be significant in that way. Uh, but at the very least, we think that's important because, uh, first of all, they're underrepresented in a lot of these uh, metrics and indices. Uh, but also adding new cities, I think, keeps it vibrant. And in fact, one of the things we're going to do in the future is uh, add cities based on how, uh, how attractive they are uh, to businesses and workers and how vibrant and growing they are. Because uh, even though you have large states like New York and California have some of the largest cities, you have other cities that are medium-sized that are getting larger and states are getting larger because they're attracting more people. Arizona is actually uh, a beneficiary of a lot of this. And so over time, I think we're gonna start seeing more cities are adding to DBNA that reflect 
more of, of the business centers of the future and not so much the business centers of the past. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that's great. I, I, the discussion on the territories, I think, is a very interesting, too. I, I realize that now that we talk about it, more, more sort of stats and more of a discussion on that in the next report or whenever you guys do get to that. I think that'd be very interesting to look at. <laughs> um, Jens, we, we've talked about a lot. Uh, we're at that time now. It's time for a formal wrap up. So in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest or, or guests actually have the last word. So let me say, let, let's try and bring our conversation full circle and, and kind of put a fi- finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask each of you and uh and and we'll start with steve first then we'll go to ross in this case so let me ask each of you what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what policies hurt or or help business if there's sort of like one or two high level things you want at least someone to take away from this conversation what, what would those be steve i think as long as a city is be is is open to innovation and open to the idea that policymakers are not going to get it right most of the time just due to the the, the realities of how uh, government works, uh, and they instead let a thousand flowers bloom, as they say. Uh, those are the cities that are going to do best, not just in our ranking, but we think based on the empirical work we've done to date and continues to be done on DBNA and also similar metrics and similar rankings, uh, is that uh, when you've got a, a more, uh, shall we say, free market policy uh, in a city, you're going to find more prosperity, more uh, business growth, over the long term. And I think that's the important part here, helping uh, policymakers identify uh, the policy levers they can push uh, to achieve uh, that next stage of, of growth for their citizens and workers. Russ? I think of the uh, potential changes for greater market openness in cities uh, as running a, a, a hurdle between very typical public choice uh, problems. Um, in, in the literature, it's called the Baptist and bootleggers problem. And, um, and that is that people with radically different uh, purposes and objectives often end up aligning themselves as incumbents in the policy world with political position and, and, and political recognition um, against um, things which involve change, and um, and and that that leak that, that can lead to an atrophying of a city's um, stance um, stance towards innovative activity, because it disrupts something that somebody has a stake in, and that person who has or that group that has a stake in it um, is already an incumbent and already recognized by the political powers, and often you get people with very different agendas aligning together. And, uh, and, and so this is a continual evolution. And um, my expectation is that over time, um, uh, cities will uh, rise in the rankings and fall in the rankings. Um, there's never going to be uh, the city that is uh, perpetually number one for, for forever and ever because um, things get stuck, you know. Uh, I've been pleased to see that uh, Canadian cities are responsive to openness at the, in, in many cases, obviously not in all, but in many cases we're seeing um, a movement towards openness. And, uh, and hopefully that will uh, continue to happen in city policy as well as in other levels of governance. Uh, we see the same thing in the US and 
uh, the same kind of movement. And the places that you know people are like, I wouldn't expect Raleigh, North Carolina, to be you know number one. Um, and it's like, well, that's good. That means that uh, that there's change. That there's uh, new cities being responsive to the movement towards new things, uh, as opposed to just uh, holding on to the past. Ross Emmett and Steve Flavinsky, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task, gentlemen. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank, thank you. you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.